0: Okay, good. I'm going to ask you to um, find your seats. We're going to get cracking on our preach this morning. It's good to be with you, and uh, always a privilege to share God's word with you this morning. But uh, before I do that, I just want to do uh, one thing. We we're a church where we we love to honour people. Uh, We love to honour people who have served in different ways. Uh, it 's part of our culture it 's part of what we believe God calls us to do, and there are a number of people that we could do that with but um, i 'm going to keep talking whilst Mark just twiddles with the, uh, the settings and keep rambling a little bit but uh, one of the one of the roles in church life that you probably almost never hear about is trustees <clears throat> trustees they're a really important part of our church and our church governance. And they do a superb job. We have a number of trustees that come from across the church, uh, different sites. We have uh, uh, Kate, uh, who is uh, currently serving on our trustees. Give us a wave, Kate, a bit bigger than that, come on. Well done, superb. Not only is Kate a staff member, but she's also a trustee as well. Uh, She's been serving for a number of years already. Um, And the, the trustees do a really important job of just ensuring that as a church, we are safe. Safe in terms of legal position, safe financially, that we're stewarding well, that the leadership of this church is well-governed. So there is an important role that they play uh, and, and I want you to know I am so grateful for them. They work hard behind the scenes uh, in so many different ways and serve in incredible ways. Uh, but one particular person who is amongst us that I really wanted to honour, uh, who has served in our trustees for a number of years, and who recently said, "My season is done. It's time to hang on and hand over to someone else." But I would love us to give a huge round of applause for the most wonderful Ken Stevens. fine looking young man he is too up on that picture Uh, so I had the privilege of leading the trustees for a little while and I worked alongside Ken on a number of different projects and through some difficult situations at the time and I tell you he's just an incredibly faithful wise guy Uh, and I was just so grateful for him when I really didn't have a clue what I was doing I was glad Ken did so uh, well done Ken really appreciate you thank you well done. Good stuff. Okay, let's get into our preach today. I don't know about you, whether you've ever had the opportunity uh, to be part or witness some sort of celebratory parade. Uh, I don't know whether that's been uh, part of your opportunity, whether that's maybe going down to the seafront and celebrating when the seagulls won promotion, huge great parade on the seafront, and big open top bus, or maybe you've been to London for a royal event or something like that, maybe recently. Uh, you might have been privileged enough to even been in New York and seen one of those ticker tape parades. Have you seen that where the streets are just full of litter basically, but we call it a, a parade or maybe you 've watched on TV the ordination of a new pope or an inauguration of a, a world leader but You might have a a picture in your mind of what a a parade looks like. Uh, Some sort of grand, elaborate, carefully planned, thoughtful event that's usually designed to point to one person and one person alone. But we're going to hear a little bit this morning about a different type of parade that happened in a very different type of way. But let's hear our scripture and then I'll unpack it a little bit in a moment.
1: Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee.
0: If I'd have been asked to to read that, there are points where I would have gone a little bit more gusto. But uh, we'll come to that in a moment. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you that it is rich food to our souls this morning. And uh, I thank you for where we are in our series in Matthew, uh, talking about hope is here. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would help me to uh, share your word faithfully and diligently uh, for what you've put in our hearts this morning. And uh, I just pray you do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so those of you who uh, have more of a traditional or Anglican upbringing... Uh, I can hear you wrestling on your seat already this morning and saying, Tell you' are four weeks early. Come back in a month. Why? Because this generally is seen as a Palm Sunday text. And we're not in Palm Sunday today. Just so you don't adjust your calendar. We're not in the wrong month. It's still February, okay? But we are going to uh, go, continue to go through our book of Matthew. And actually, there's a lot to cover in the next four weeks. So we have got to where we are uh, this week. So I apologize maybe if you feel that we're doing Palm Sunday text on the wrong week. But uh, just to let you know. So we're going through the second half of the book of Matthew. And you're familiar with the gospel, then you'll know the writer Matthew has spent the first 20 chapters so far on sort of 33 years of Jesus' life. So three quarters of this book has already been spent on the first 33 years. But as we enter this last quarter from Matthew 21, so in other words, the rest of this book is entirely focused on the events that are going to unfold in the next seven days. So seven chapters on seven days. So there's some biblically significant numbering perfection right there for a start off, right? Right at the beginning of this preach. But what I love about the Bible personally, and what I love about preparing for a preach, is the more times you read over a text, the more you see. And as you pray and ask God, and you do a little bit of research, and you look through what you've been given as a text you find more and more comes out. I hope that's your experience. If it isn't, my encouragement is get into the word. Get into not just reading it, but get into a little bit of studying it. There's some real nuggets in here that I want us to uh, uh, quickly share this morning. I don't want to gloss over them. Some I want to dig into, uh, and some we'll come back to. I'm going to walk through these verses and capture some. Right at the very start, the very first opening verse, if you've still got your Bible open this morning, says that when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to the Mount of Olives. First sentence, opening part of the chapter. Is that the important part of the chapter? Is it a little bit further on in terms of the donkey uh, or maybe the significance of the parade? But actually, I want to stop here. It's easy for us just to think, well, that's a helpful picture. Mount of Olives, 2,000 years later, it helps me think a little bit what the landscape looked like. I can find it on a map. It gives me some context to what I'm reading here. But then I stopped and I looked a little deeper. And I looked a little wider into this and found more significance to why Jesus was coming down off the Mount of Olives than I realised just by reading it. See, the Mount of Olives is a significant place in the Bible. I don't know whether you knew that, but it is. Uh, not only is it the, the, where they actually took the olives and pressed them to have olive oil that anointed kings in the city of Jerusalem. Pretty significant in itself. But if you go back and look through the Bible, it gets referenced a number of times. So King David ascended to the Mount of Olives to pray regularly. The prophet Zechariah and Ezekiel prophesied from the Mount of Olives about the future judgment on Israel, as well as the future restoration of God's kingdom. In the week leading up to the cross... Jesus visited the Mount of Olives three times. I didn't even know that. I had to go and read it. And it's also the place where Jesus ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is a significant place that it's very easy for us to skip over when we read the first sentence of an opening chapter. You see, the Mount of Olives is a place full of prophecy. It's a place of prayer. It's a place of hope, a place of redemption, a place of victory. And even from reading these verses today, we read that there is a powerful allegory here of other significant parts of Jesus' ministry and God's plan. So just as Jesus came down from the Mount of Olives, we think through different elements and we see Jesus came down from heaven to earth. Jesus went down into the river to be baptised. Jesus came down from life to death on a cross. So even this first sentence, there's such significance of Jesus and the power of his ministry. And then equally, as Zechariah prophesied that the Messiah would once again ascend the Mount of Olives to restore rule and authority, we think back and say Jesus would rise from baptism in the river and the Spirit would come upon him. Jesus rose from the dead after the cross and Jesus ascended and went up to heaven. There's so much richness in these verses alone, that we could do the rest of the morning just on this one sentence. But as you get to know the Bible and its meanings, there's more connections, it plans, it teaches us. Let's get through a few more. I just want to literally walk us through these verses and then bring a challenge to us at the end. The overriding narrative to these scriptures is both simple but yet profound. Here is Jesus the Messiah, the coming King, coming into the holy city of Jerusalem, the place of Jewish rule, and reigned for centuries, followed by crowds meeting another crowd, all of whom were desperate to be freed from their oppressors and giving very different reactions to Jesus as he came into the city. And for a king that was expected to come in triumph, maybe it wasn't quite the entrance that some were expecting. I love the fact that here... We also finally see some enlightened disciples. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when I I preached to us, I talked about the hapless disciples. They never quite get it right. They were almost always, but not quite. But here, we're going to find some enlightened disciples. Praise God for that. Let me just pick this out because I found this quite funny as I was reading through this. Disciples went went and did as Jesus had directed them. Finally the disciples got it, they just got on with it, rather than saying, well, why are we doing that? Why is that important? What does that look like? It's like, no, we get it. Jesus, we finally got the point. We're just going to go and do as you said, finally. So they go off and they bring this donkey, this young offspring who has not yet been broken in to carry the King of Kings. Now, I don't know what you've thought about it. And again, this is one of those things that I hadn't really thought about before. Up till this point, Jesus walked Everywhere he went. Did you stop and think about that? Up until this point, this is the first and only recorded incident of Jesus riding an animal. He walked everywhere and he walked miles. If you think about Jesus' his life and ministry and journey, he walked miles. But there's a point at which we're coming to the culmination over the next few chapters of the point of Jesus' ministry. We know now, looking back, that Jesus is the king. And so there is a point here at which this is a deliberate act, riding on a donkey into the city of power for the Jewish nation. This is a deliberate act. It's very obvious there is a purpose behind Jesus' action. Again, let's dig a little deeper. Why didn't he come riding in on a horse? There's a question. I would have done personally. Donkey, horse, choice, Mm, horse please. But the point is, no. Jesus knew that riding in on a horse would have been seen as an act of aggression and as one who would come to conquer. But actually, a king coming in riding on a donkey was a sign of peace. And so he knew that. He chose a donkey deliberately. But actually, it was far more than that. In verse 4, it spells out the primary purpose of why he did that. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. So it wasn't just a random act. It wasn't just find the nearest animal that will carry a man. But actually, let's fulfill prophecy because this is what I'm here to do. So which prophet is that? Well, it's the prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah 9, 9, we have the original prophecy that the gospel writers are referring to. And it says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. It was in the middle of the verses we read. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the choice is deliberate. The choice is prophetic. It's the fulfillment of prophecy. It's the coming of the king in peace And humility. Fulfillment of prophecy is a major concern for Matthew. All the way through the book we'll see six, seven different instances where he picks up on the fulfillment of prophecy through Jesus's life because he knows that he's writing for a church mainly composed of Jewish Christians and they would be very aware of prophecy and looking for fulfillment as part of that prophetic history. By identifying Jesus as a king, and in this verse, it also sets up the stage for Pilate's concern in the following seven days. That Jesus plans to establish himself as a king, which by Roman standards constitutes treason. And we're going to walk into that over the coming three weeks. On the cross, they mock Jesus, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Verse In chapter 27, we'll come to that in a couple of weeks. And on the plaque mounted on the cross specifying the charges against Jesus, it says, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. So this reference of King is strongly coming through that hasn't yet been there, but it's now coming to fulfilment at this moment as he comes into Jerusalem. Only a few chapters earlier, when the disciples were talking, Peter has revelation And this is what I was talking about, the disciples finally getting it. Peter has a divine revelation. Remember it back in chapter 16 where he says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. There's a moment where after months and years of walking and seeing Jesus, teaching and his ministry and praying and spiritual impartation, there is now a kingly realisation to those that were following him. And as Jesus progresses towards Jerusalem, we see crowds laying down their cloaks and palm leaves on the roads before him again. If we stop for a moment look a little deeper into those, what are we seeing here? They're symbolising a couple of things. The cloak laying down is important because it was a sign of submission to the one who brings victory. That's why they did it. It was an act of submission to one who was going to bring victory. And that actually, that act followed through even as late as the 16th and 17th century in England. You can, you can read historical writing about it. The palm leaves, the palm leaves are also significant. It's not just because of where they lived and they happened to be handy and they cut the first thing down. There's significance between, behind palm leaves and what they tell. Because palm leaves were used to welcome the homecoming of a conquering hero. So in every element of this text, there is beautiful picture language that talks about the coming of the king. And as they walk in, and as Jesus is riding through this donkey, he's riding over palm leaves, and he's riding over cloaks. There's a crowd that have followed, shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! What does that even mean? took me a little while to look look it up and work it through and understand what's going on, even in what they're saying. Hosanna, the word Hosanna means save now. They would shout it as kings rode in because they recognised, here is someone of power and I want to align behind you and I want your mercy because clearly you're going to be the one. And so they recognised this and as Jesus is riding through, then this crowd now gets it. And I'll come on to a little bit more about this crowd and who they were in a second. They're shouting, save now. This crowd is the same people who have probably been on the road with Jesus for some time. This isn't just a random crowd that have gathered. People were following him. As you read through the Gospels, we think there are just these interactions with separate groups of people. But actually, we think and look that that we can read that there's there's a following. They're following Jesus uh, all the way through. So along the way he would have picked up many people, women, prostitutes, Jesus' mother and sisters, other women who have been treated as equals for the first time in their lives. There were former lepers, people who had once been blind, lame and even dead. There were no doubt many hundreds if not thousands of people who would experienced being fed on the hillside and come from thousands of crowds and of course the disciples as well. Those who knew Jesus most intimately would have been part of this crowd as well. They thought they'd found the person to make all of their dreams come true. They looked to Jesus and called out, Jesus, Hosanna, save us now. They believed that Jesus could give them exactly what they were looking for, which they Do you want to Someone who would make their lives easier and more comfortable, maybe the batteries died, maybe just didn't want to hear me anymore. After all, Jesus certainly seemed to possess the power for what they were looking for. Jesus' reputation had grown throughout Israel during this time that uh, he was coming to uh, heal the sick, perform miracles, freedom from suffering, provide food and even raise dead men to life. So they were ready for Jesus to save them from their problems. As he entered Jerusalem... Did you notice in the text, there's another group of people. It's not the same group, there's a second group of people. And in this time, Jerusalem had about 40,000 residents. But it was Passover weekend. It was the feast of the Passover. And there would have been literally hundreds of thousands of people in the city as Jews from all over the region would make their journey back to their ancestral home. Passover is a significant festival. It still is. Uh, and there was a sense that at this point that uh, this mighty prophet Jesus might turn up and make a bit of a statement at a significant weekend and that's certainly going to happen as we get into the next 7 days so Jesus is making an entrance into the holy city on the feast of passover knowing what is coming in the few weeks ahead what the jerusalem crowd wants for him to do is to deliver them from the jewish the jewish nation from the tyranny of the romans so they want mercy and freedom and they think maybe Jesus can bring that they've been second rate for some time they'd no king no power no influence no real home to call their own they were under occupation it's been a long and painful history for Israel as they always seem to come out on the losing end and the Jews were looking forward to a day when things would be reversed and at this moment in the Passover as Jesus comes into the city some of them are hoping that this is going to be the case Rescue us from ruthless Romans, restore our nations, make our lives better. Jesus, save us now. And if you think about it, there's a little bit of a a look back to much earlier in their history, right? An oppressed nation under the rule of another king, grumbling about their lives, wanting and needing a way out of their circumstances to be led into a promised land. There's direct parallels here with where Israel is at in Jerusalem to where the Israelites were at. And their escape from Egypt. And if you think back to that moment, how was it that God protected the Israelites in the lead up to their leaving Egypt, right? It was the sacrifice of a lamb to paint some blood onto the, the door post that when the angel of death came, he would pass over the houses of God's people. This was their redemption story. And Passover, the feast of Passover, reminded them of God's saving power and provision as he had led them out of slavery. And here we are thousands of years later in Jerusalem under the oppression of the Roman army and governors and people celebrating the history of God's intervention in saving them previously from tyranny and harsh rule. And what the crowd is looking for at this moment as Jesus enters is another redemption story. But what we have is Jesus arriving in Jerusalem in the middle of Passover, coming across the city threshold knowing that in just a few days he would become the only one true sacrificial lamb whose blood would be shed for us, not in the immediacy of our circumstances or even for our desired freedom, but instead, and far more importantly, for eternity in the freedom that we can enjoy in God. This isn't just another redemption story. This is the redemption story coming to a climax. Now Matthew tells us that the city was all stirred up and uh, in these words stirred up there's also a hint of what is coming. Jesus's enemies lurking in the background angry preparing to challenge Jesus's authority planning to trap him with trick questions and plotting to kill him and again we're going to come to that over the next couple of weeks but when you look at the Greek word behind stirred up and I say this with all carefulness given current situations, the Greek word here actually indicates that literally the city physically shook. The Greek word is esyth. I didn't know that. I had to look it up. Okay? And it's the word from which we get seismology or seismic study of earthquakes. And Matthew is telling us that as Jesus entered the city, the city physically shook because of the power of the King of Kings walking in at this moment. That's the power of the kingdom when Jesus comes. But the crowd are asking in this moment who is this? They want a Saviour, they want redemption, but they're not truly sure. And this is a great question that Matthew's been dealing with right from the very first verse of his book and gospel bringing in the genealogy that identified Jesus as Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is Jesus Christ. I'm just going to run through. Emmanuel, God with us, king of the Jews, a prince and a shepherd, the Lord, the one who were baptised with the Holy Spirit and fire, my beloved son. As you read through, all the way through, Matthew's gospel and account of Jesus' life, the whole story is building to this is who Jesus is. And yet this crowd is, who is this? Oh, strange question. But as I said earlier, with Peter, he'd had that divine revelation. He said, "Who do you say I am?" He says, "You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That just circumstance and what we see alone is not enough. Spiritual, heavenly impartation is what we need to really understand the power of the gospel. In just five days from Palm Sunday, Jesus would leave Jerusalem, not riding on a donkey, but carrying a cross. The cries of save us would be replaced with the mockery of save yourself. Jesus would go to suffer and die in our place and the place of all the people. I want to ask you this morning, I want to leave us with a little thought and a bit of a challenge Who do you identify with this morning from this story? Are you one of the crowd outside the city gates? You've heard and seen what Jesus can do, but you're looking for God to save you from your circumstances. Is that where you're at? Are you one of the crowd inside Jerusalem? Again, you've seen and heard about Jesus, but you reject him just as a good person or maybe a prophet but he definitely wouldn't be king of your life. Or are you one of the disciples you follow faithfully and dutifully and you're starting to get it? Or are you Peter, who's had divine revelation and come to realise that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? I'm praying for divine revelation in our hearts this morning. It was great as we worshipped and we heard about trusting in God, but for us, just trusting isn't enough. Faith is important, it's the first step. But what we need is we need divine revelation in the, by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to call us out of who we are. Stephen the Banker, come and join us. In this text, we see Jesus descend from a mountain of significance to be adored by crowds who have followed and watched his miracles and teaching. Come to the holy city of Jerusalem to be mocked. And over the coming weeks, we're going to dig more into the next seven days of Jesus' life and the culmination of his glorious gospel. But for one who came born in a stable, riding on a donkey, let me share a spoiler alert with you. Here is what's to come, okay? So Revelation 19 says this, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse And he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are a crown of many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And here's the bit. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the Jesus we come to this morning. King of Kings, Lord of Lords, majestic God, Saviour of the universe. We are so privileged to be in the situation we are in, to call him God our Father, Jesus our Saviour and our Brother, the Holy Spirit who brings divine revelation. It's a glorious text, there's a lot in here. We could speak on this text for days and days and days. Hopefully just a brief snippet for you this morning. But we're going to come and worship God And we're just going to proclaim him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords this morning. Amen.